Amen. As you're finding your seat, the oldest group of freshwater kids is going to make their way out of the room, and I'm going to ask that the rest of us would take our copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as we talk today about how Jesus equips his followers through the Holy Spirit to follow him. That's page 900, 901, something like that in your pew Bible. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor at Freshwater. So if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're especially glad that you're here with us today on the Lord's Day. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you are a guest with us, I'd love to meet you before you leave for the day. I hang out at the door, so um, just reach out, say hi, uh, first time guest, and I'd love to just get to say hi before you leave for the day. As you're turning in your copy of God's Word, it was like uh, most other hospital waiting rooms. It was a big, narrow room filled with plasticky furniture. The art on the wall was the normal cheesy flower pictures that we all know have to be inside of hospitals. We had been there for, I don't even remember how many hours we'd been there, but it had been a long time. And my entire family was there, including my aunts, my uncles, my sisters, my father, and my grandfather. And you've been in those situations where the situation is just so um, thick that it's really difficult to find something to talk about for 8 or 10 or 12 straight hours. So what do you do? You resort to thumbing through the endless supply of hospital waiting room magazines. You all know the ones where the doctors and the nurses have marked out their names with a Sharpie marker on the front cover so that you can't go stalk them and find out where they live. When the surgeon finally came in and after he identified who we were, he began speaking most directly to my father and my grandfather. It was my mother's first bout with breast cancer and going into the surgery, the outlook was relatively positive. But uh, you can interpret a lot from an individual's mood and their tone and their disposition and this doctor's mood and his tone and his disposition after the surgery um, was not good. So he came into the room and he used a lot of big fancy words that most 18-year-olds would have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. But he was polite, he was cordial, but just a little bit hard to pin down on what exactly he was trying to get to. So eventually I just spoke up and I said, Hey doc, you know, is my mom going to be okay? At which he responded and he said, probably not. So I asked, well, you know, what are the chances of her surviving the immediate future and surviving through this bout with breast cancer? Because we always tend to think in percentages. And he replied and he said, probably 5%. Which I thought to myself, that probably means 0%. But he didn't want to take away every shred of hope that we have. And that's probably why he said 5 But we've all been there. Normally, not one of our most fond moments when we think back to those settings where our loved one was on the brink of death. But when I think back to that event and one of the most significant discussions with a surgeon and a doctor in my entire life, what he was doing was, in the best way that he could, he was preparing me for what he believed would very soon be the day when me and the rest of my family members would no longer have my mother. And now I look back and I understand that in his demeanor, and in his choice of words, in his content, in his tone, 
he was preparing all of us for my mother's impending death. Jesus does exactly that many, many times in the Gospel of John. And the scripture that we're going to look at today, Jesus is preparing his followers for the very soon day when they're going to wake up, they're going to roll out of bed, they're going to place their feet on the ground, and that person that they had spent so much time with and had grown in faith with for the last three years would no longer be with them. And what we're going to see today is that as Jesus prepared his disciples for his death and his departure, and what Jesus promised to them would be their strength in his absence, that's the very same promise that Jesus makes to us today. It's the exact same promise. It's the exact same source of hope. It's the exact same conduit of power and endurance and perseverance that he offered to them 2,000 years ago as he offers to us, Christ followers, today. Now, I'm going to tell you what that promise is in just a minute. But before I do, let me kind of bring us up to date on the Scripture that we're looking at. We know that the reason or the purpose of the Gospel of John is found at the end of the book when John says that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in Christ's name. So we know that everything in this book is ushering us toward believing in Christ and being saved from a sinner's hell. We've seen so much occur in these first 14 chapters, everything from amazing miracles to teachings that are expressly found in the Gospel of John to Jesus directly claiming to be God to the religious leaders of the day deciding that they're going to kill Christ to now we're entering the final days of Jesus' life to Jesus preparing these men that he spent the last three years living life with for the day when they will no longer have Christ in the flesh. And what Jesus does to prepare them is he begins to tell them about the Holy Spirit. Now let me say some things about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about God. When we talk about God, you should think Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, you should think God. And when we talk about who God is, Orthodox Christians, I believe, can disagree on a lot of things. We can disagree on when exactly Jesus is coming back. We can disagree on how often we should be taking communion together. There are a lot of things that we can disagree on, but we cannot disagree on who God is. So, God is one God, but that one God exists in three persons, just like we sang about earlier. And when I say three persons, I don't mean three people like we are three people, because the three persons of the Trinity are not divided into essence or nature or being, but... Three persons nonetheless, and those three persons are, of course, who? God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of those persons of the Trinity have always existed as God. None of them is more important or more God than the others. They are all united in purpose and mission, yet all of them at the same time have distinct roles, don't they? And by the way, I know that many of us have tried to deal with the Trinity and how all of this works out by using these illustrations. Like sometimes we will say, well, you know, God is like an egg, isn't he? Where there's the white part, and then there's the yellow part, and there's the shell. And that's kind of how God is, and that's how we try to describe the Trinity. Or we'll say, God is like an individual that can simultaneously be a father and a husband and a brother. And he's all of those at the same time. Or God is like water, where God can be ice, 
or God can be liquid, or God can turn into steam. Many of us have heard those illustrations, and many of us have used them. I would really advise you to abandon those. I wouldn't advise you to teach those to your kids. Don't advance those. I know we think we're doing good whenever we use those types of illustrations, but there is actually an ancient heresy that has been condemned by the church centuries ago that every one of those illustrations is actually teaching. So just know that every single one of them falls short of of accurately describing who God is in the Trinity. So I would really beg you to take the advice of Francis Chan when he said that anytime we say that God is like something, we are entering an unbiblical and unrealistic area because God is not like anything. That's why he's God. That's why you're not God. But anyway, uh, if we move on, when we think about the Holy Spirit, here's what we're thinking about. Jesus... Jesus, anticipating his death, really only being a couple days away, promises that when he dies and when he ascends and when he goes back to heaven and when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, Jesus says that he's then going to send one that is better than Jesus and that better one is going to live in Christ's followers. Now, specifically about our text this morning, Jesus is promising his followers the Holy Spirit so that we'll be able to follow Christ in his absence. And what we're going to see are three ways the Holy Spirit equips you to follow Christ. Three ways the Holy Spirit equips you to follow Christ. I'll give you that first way, and then we'll look at the text. The first way that the Holy Spirit equips you to follow Christ is that he connects your heart with your life. He connects your heart with your life. Because look with me, beginning at verse 15, and reading through to verse 24. Look in your copy of God's Word. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Jesus answers him, If anyone loves me... He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, let's stop right there. Let's pause. Let's camp out on this, and let's think about this for just a second. I know that that is a lot of text for us to cover for just the the first main point, but you'll notice this double emphasis happening in the text. Jesus is stating that if we love God, what are we going to do? We're going to be obedient to God. And that the way that we can have the power and the ability to be obedient to God is through and by the Holy Spirit. You'll actually notice that no less than four times Jesus basically says the exact same things. Packaged just a little bit differently, but he says, if you love God, what? You will keep God's commandments. Now, some of us sitting here, we might catch ourselves thinking, well, yeah, 
yeah, preacher, duh. You know, that's obvious. Everybody knows that if you love God, you will keep his commandments. That's kind of common knowledge. Everybody agrees with that. But I would push back on you a little bit. And I would say, no, not everybody really does agree with that. Because I have met an awful lot of people who live in complete opposition to God and his word. I mean, they don't care what they do. They don't care if their life even mirrors a little bit of what the Bible teaches. But if you asked them if they loved God, they would say, well, absolutely, of course I love God. Because somewhere along the line, Americans have divorced what happens internally in our heart from what happens externally in our life. So yeah, sure, I can love God and completely ignore everything that he says. What's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? Or yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian in the United States. You know what, it doesn't matter what my life looks like because I know that I love Jesus in my heart. These are the things that I've heard so many times. And we act as though you can divorce the way that you live in your life from what is truly happening in your heart when the Bible connects the two so closely that they cannot be separated. As a matter of fact, here's a way to think about it. When I was recently in Guatemala, it was a vision trip establishing a disciple-making partnership Um, that I'm going to be telling you more about in November at the annual family meeting. But I would stay the night in a guest house in Guatemala City, and then I would travel out um, into a surrounding community during the day. And the guest house that I was staying in was really nice, but I'll tell you what was especially nice was the backyard. And that normally our backyards are kind of like for playing or, you know, maybe for entertaining or whatever. Well, their backyards oftentimes contain a variety of different trees and all kinds of plants that we don't have here in Missouri. So one morning, I'm waiting for my ride to show up and to take me to my appointment that morning. And I'm walking around in the backyard of this guest house looking at these different types of trees. And one of them specifically has my attention. And it's got my attention because there's no type of a tree like this in Missouri. So if you can imagine, probably a tree that's maybe seven foot tall. So not extremely tall by any means. Huge, large, smooth pieces of bark running up the trunk. Trunk is probably a foot or a foot and a half diameter at the widest. The leaves and the branches mostly come out of the top of the tree and then kind of swoop down. The leaves are these huge, like green, plasticky, almost looking leaves. And I'm trying to find out, I wonder what kind of a tree this is. So I look closely at the leaves, and I look at the veins running through the leaves, and I peel back the bark a little bit for further inspection. And if you would have been watching me, you would have really thought that I was a weirdo. I mean, if you could imagine, if you were playing with your kids at the park, and I was thinking about this afterwards, and if you saw some guy walking around smelling trees, and, you know, counting the veins on the leaves and everything, you'd probably pull your kids quietly, exit, go to a park on the other side of town, because something is not right with this dude. Well, that's what I'm doing. And then I look up, and suddenly, I don't know how I missed it, but barely above eye level was a big bushel of bananas. You don't see bananas a lot in Missouri, do you? But see, I didn't need to know all the details about the tree, did I? I didn't need to examine the veins and the leaves. I didn't need to look at the bark. I didn't need to look at the roots. It doesn't matter how tall it is, because I can look at the fruit that it produced, and I can know exactly what type of a tree it is. That's all I needed to know. Well, look, the Bible connects what is going on in your heart with what is going on in your life in a similar way. Just as a banana tree produces bananas, so a love for God, Jesus says, produces a desire and a willingness to allow your life to be transformed by God. 
Which means that if you're not allowing your life to be transformed by God, if you're not obeying His commandments, if you're not interested in seeing your life change, if you're continuing in disobedience toward God, it's not just that you have an obedience problem, it's that you have a problem in the way that you love God. That's the issue. So before we move on, let me just ask you, are you a person that is allowing God and His Word to truly change your life? Is your relationship with Christ something that influences and rules over every single part of your being, not just 9.30 Sunday morning? Would people look at you and say, you know what, they claim to love God, but they don't obey His commandments. They don't obey His Word. So let me just say this before we move on. We don't want to be people that are so foolish as to think that the way that we live doesn't matter in the eyes of God. Jesus clearly tells us that if we love God, we will keep His commandments. He connects your life with your heart. So we've now seen that first way. We're going to now move on to the second way. The second way the Holy Spirit equips you to follow Jesus is that He teaches you how to obey God. He teaches you how to obey God. God. Because look with me now at verses 25 and 26. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, let's pause right there and let's think about all the things the text has told us so far about the Holy Spirit. Let's just kind of review some things that we didn't really get to pay any attention to. We've already read that the Holy Spirit is going to be with us forever. That was back in verse 16. Hope you caught that. We know from the very same verse that the world does not recognize the Holy Spirit. We know from the very same verse that this Holy Spirit lives inside of Christ's followers. But we also saw back in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit is referred to as our helper. Or some of your translations use the word advocate. And then again in verse 26, he states, But the helper... The Holy Spirit. So know that calling the Holy Spirit the helper is a very intentional statement by Jesus Christ. He does it twice here. He's going to do it two more times actually in just the next couple chapters that we're going to be covering over the, the, the next six weeks or so. And then the only other time that the word is used is actually in the book of 1 John. So all of the times that that word helper or advocate is used in the New Testament is written specifically by the apostle John. And it's likely that the disciples didn't understand him completely at this point, but the type of helping that Jesus is talking about is very specific. And I want you to understand the type of helping that Jesus is talking about before we see how this applies to your life. Because think about the end of verse 26. Look again at the end of verse 26. Jesus describes the Helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, you know what type of helping Jesus is likely talking about? Well, think about who Jesus is talking to and think about when Jesus is talking to them. Jesus is talking to who? Well, He's talking to the 11 apostles, the 11 the disciples after Judas has left. This is so close to the point when Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus is likely telling the disciples, that, look, right now, this is a spiritual whirlwind. For you, right? I mean, you don't even understand how important the time is right now. You don't understand how the events unfolding right now are going to be discussed and taught for all of eternity. But when God one day uses you, disciples, to record His Word, as in when God one day uses you to record His Bible, His Gospel accounts, the same written Word that we're reading right now, the Holy Spirit is going to help you remember what has happened so that you can record an accurate, true, perfect rendering of the events of my life. 
So this statement is actually about Scripture. Jesus saying the Holy Spirit is going to help you record the book of John that we're reading right now and all the rest of the books that they write. So that's, that's what Jesus is getting at. Now for us, newsflash, we're not recording the Bible anymore, right? The Bible, the canon is closed. God, I'm just going to let you in on something. God is not telling you to write another book of the Bible. You ever think God's doing that? I'll just write that one off. He's not doing that. So that's not our job. We're not adding to Scripture. God's not using us in that way. But the Holy Spirit is absolutely still the exact same helper then as He is now. Now how so? Well, here's the list that's on your sermon outline if you're doing the little fill-in thing. How does the Holy Spirit teach us and help us even today? Now, this week in your life groups, you're going to work through all of these scriptures that I've got listed, so I won't read those to you right now. But first, here's number one. First, He leads us. The Holy Spirit leads us. Second, He empowers us to resist temptation. So Christian, you don't have to give in to temptation. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You can resist temptation. Third, He teaches you how to pray. Do you know that? The Holy Spirit tells you what to pray. He teaches you how to pray. Fourth, He reminds us that we are God's children. So you are a child of God if you've been born again. If you're following Christ, you're now one of God's children. Fifth, He bestows gifts. There's several sermons just talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Sixth, He brings unity to the church. He doesn't bring disunity to the church. He brings unity to the church. I mean, this list is really a puny one. There's so many more that we could say the Holy Spirit does in the ways that He helps us. But here's the common denominator. The Holy Spirit changes you. That's the common denominator. The Holy Spirit changes you. What does He do? He takes you from death to life. He gives you a healthy hatred for sin. He teaches you His desires through the Scriptures. He teaches you what to say when you pray. He takes your old, fleshy, worldly desires and He shows you how He is infinitely better than any of that stuff that so often takes our attention. That's the helper of the Holy Spirit. That's how God changes you from the inside out. Now here's why this is so important. Um, Shastanos, I recently bought a vertical blind for our sliding door on the back of our house. The one that was there um, needed to be replaced when we moved in three years ago, but I just didn't want to spend the money, honestly. Um, pretty pricey thing, so we kept pushing it off as long as we could until finally got so fed up with the thing, I took it down and threw it out in the yard. The neighbors had to look at it for you know, a week or whatever. So, so finally we had to bite the bullet and, and I ordered a new one. And I did quite a bit of research on these things and the one that I finally settled on was a pretty cheap one compared to most. And most of the reviews said that the quality of this vertical blind that's going to go over my door, was, you know, okay, but the reviews consistently said that the instructions were horrible. And that's what all the reviews said. Like, review after review after review. Everybody said, okay, get your blind, get the blocks, get the box, open up the box, find the instructions, burn them in the front yard. Because they're not good for anything. So I remember one lady writing the review, and um, I knew I was getting into something here, when she said something along the lines of, not a direct quote, but she said, my husband is a chief engineer for one of the largest aerospace companies in the world, and he couldn't figure out your instructions. So I knew this is, this is going to be a real pickle, but we ordered it anyway. So I get it in, I wrestle through the installation, I finally get to a point where the instructions are just no longer good for anything, and I am at a deadlock. 
And I cannot figure out how this thing works. So 10 minutes go by, and I'm still struggling with it, and I'm moving the strings around, I'm checking the measurements, and I'm flipping pieces around and trying to find out if maybe they assembled it wrong whenever they put it together. Um, And before you know it, 20 minutes has went by, and before you know it, 30 minutes has went by, and I can't get past this one step, and I'm getting frustrated, honestly. Didn't curse, praise Jesus, but it's frustrating when you try to do that stuff. And then I see on the top of the instructions, in big, bold letters, the same thing that's always on these things. It says, for help installing this product, call, and then it's got a 1-800 number. And I thought to myself, you know, if I picked up the phone and I actually called that 1-800 number, these people that are going to answer the phone, they do this all day long. They could probably have me through this in 30 seconds, and I'd be on to bigger and better things on my Saturday morning. But if you could take a magnifying glass and you could peer into my heart, you would know that I do not like to be helped. I don't like it at all. And when given the option, I would much rather struggle and I would resist and I would kick and I would fight you rather than allow you to help me. Some of you get that. Some of you are exactly like me. And that's why it took me four hours to put up a vertical blind over our back door. Well, look, friends, something we all need to know about the Holy Spirit as our helper is that God did not send the Holy Spirit to mankind to help us by leading us and convicting us of sin and unifying us and all that list I just went over. God didn't send the Holy Spirit to us because we were struggling and he just got impatient. He's like, I want them to get the job done a little bit quicker. That's not it at all. God sent the Holy Spirit to us because we were never going to get it done. It's not a matter of God just wanted to speed up the process. It's a matter of it was never going to happen. So the Holy Spirit as helper, we should not think of this as being something that is optional. This is something that is absolutely mandatory in your life. There's no other way for you to be drawn to God. There's no other way for you to turn to Christ. There's no other way for you and I to be saved except for the Holy Spirit to help us. So what have we seen? We've seen He connects your heart with your life, doesn't He? He teaches you how to obey God. Now the third way, he also gives us rest during difficult events. He gives us rest during difficult events. Because look with me now in your copy of God's Word at verses 27 through 31. Just picking up where we left off. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now, we don't have a lot of time to discuss this one, but notice that Jesus is flat telling them that, hey, he's about to go away, isn't he? But don't worry. Don't worry. I'm leaving. Don't worry, folks, because I'm coming back. And he even says, if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. Jesus, of course, talking about how after he dies, after he goes to the grave, after he rises on the third day, after he appears to over 500 people, what's he going to do? He's going to ascend and he's going to go back to heaven where he came from. So Jesus is pointing them toward that time, telling them, hey, that's a good event. You should be looking forward to that. But then I want you to notice what he says right after that. Jesus says, verse 30, look at verse 30 again. He says, the ruler of this world 
is coming. Now, you know who he's talking about? As in, who is the ruler of this world? We might think, well, you know, God is the ruler of this world. We might think, well, God rules over everything, so God's surely the ruler of this world. And I would amen that. I get what you're saying. But that's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible uses the title ruler of this world to specifically refer to Satan the devil. So Jesus is saying, look, we don't have much time. Because remember, a month ago, or three weeks ago, whatever it was in chapter 13, verse 37... Satan entered Judas. Remember that verse? So very soon Judas, who is serving the ruler of this world, who is serving Satan the devil, is going to show up and Jesus is going to be arrested and Jesus is going to be killed. So if you notice in the very same five verses, Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit and says, you're about to have some really good things happen to you, but guess what? You're about to have some really horrible things happen as well. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take heart. Because the Holy Spirit is going to live in you and lead you. And let me say this before we begin to close, and I'll say it quickly. Some of you are in situations like that right now. I know that you are. You're in situations that are so difficult that they're hard to think about, hard to discuss. They even seem impossible, and you wonder, how are you ever going to make this situation? How are you going to ever make it out of this ordeal alive? Understand, the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we as Christ followers, can go through life not letting our hearts be troubled. No matter the situation, simply because we have God leading us, convicting us, guiding us, giving us strength, no matter what the current situation might be. So, what have we seen this morning? Let's think about it and let's review what we've seen. Jesus is preparing his followers for the day when he's no longer going to be with them. And he prepares them by telling them about this gift of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, gives us three ways the Holy Spirit equips us to follow Jesus. First, He connects your heart with your life. And that if you love God, you're going to obey His commandments. Can't get around that. Jesus says it many times. Second, He teaches you how to obey God. And that the Holy Spirit is called our helper. Twice in this text that we're looking at. And two more times in just a couple chapters. And then third, He also gives us rest during difficult circumstances or difficult events. Whereas the Holy Spirit can help us to deal with both positive and negative circumstances. But here's what I want us to close with. Here's what I want to kind of be on our mind. And I'll tell you a story to kind of set it up for us. So I recently um, binge watched a miniseries that first appeared on HBO called The Pacific. Now if, if you've ever watched Band of Brothers... Uh, know that the Pacific was related to the Band of Brothers, same producers, but the Pacific follows the lives of some U.S. soldiers that were fighting in the Pacific against the Japanese during World War II. And I'm going to give a little spoiler for you. If it upsets you, you just have to get over it because you had six years to watch the thing, all right? So there's this one soldier who um, gets a, I believe it's a Medal of Honor. It's like the not a, not, not a military guy, but I believe it's a Medal of Honor, like one of the top medals that you can get because of his bravery in battle and all these great things that he did. So the U.S. government brings him back to the U.S. to tour all around the country and to encourage people to buy U.S. war bonds so that the government will have the money to buy guns and tanks and planes and you know armor and everything else that it takes to fight a war against the Japanese. And at first, this particular soldier is resistant to being pulled off the lines of battle and away from his buddies who are getting shot at every day. He's resistant to get sent back to the States to go on this speaking tour 
But the point is made to him that if the soldiers on the front line are going to be successful in defeating the Japanese, who, remember, have bombed Pearl Harbor, they need the supplies to fight, don't they? And the way that they get the supplies is by people buying war bonds. So he's going to go back and he's going to encourage everybody, all the Americans, to buy war bonds so that the soldiers are equipped to fight the battle that they need to fight. Well, here's the point. There is a very real, whether you know it or not, there's a very real battle going on for your heart. You may not even realize it, but there is one, the ruler of this world, Satan the devil, who desires to deceive you. He has been a liar ever since the get-go. He desires to lead you astray. And he would want nothing more than for you to try to do this thing called life on your own. Because once again, you can't do it on your own. So if he could convince you of anything, he would convince you that you don't need the Holy Spirit. You don't need to rely on the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is a myth. There's nothing that you need to worry about. Just try to do this thing called life on your own. Rely on your own power. So Jesus promises his disciples the Holy Spirit, and then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, sends the Holy Spirit to live in Christ's followers so that you can be equipped and so that you can have what you need to win the battle for your heart. That's why it's given. So here's what you're called to do. You and I are called to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to move in us. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to stretch our faith. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to use us in whatever way that God would deem necessary. And by the way, this is how important this is. You and I really have no chance without the Holy Spirit. We would be soldiers going into battle without a weapon. So God loving you gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can follow Christ. Now some of you, I bet... Don't have the Holy Spirit because you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. So everything pretty much that I've said up until this point has been said to those of us that are Christians. And here's what I want you to know. Those of us that are Christians would desire nothing more for you than for you to join us in following Jesus. We are an imperfect people following a perfect Savior We've done nothing but repent and believe in the person and the work of Christ. Allow God to take over our life. And guess what? Life is a thousand times better now than when we're following the ways of the world anyway. So that's the invitation for every single one of us. For those of you that are Christians, remind yourself of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit has empowered you. And for those of us that aren't yet Christians, would you, would you place your trust in Jesus? Would you repent and believe in Jesus and begin following Christ? If you would, I'd invite you to respond in one of three different ways here at Freshwater. You received a worship guide when you walked in this morning, and on the edge of that worship guide is what we call a connect card. If you would mark that bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus with your contact information, you can throw that in the offering, uh, in the giving basket when it comes by later, and we'll contact you soon, talk with you about what that looks like for you to follow Christ. The second way that you can respond is at the back door. So on your way out, I stand at the back door. And if you just want to reach out and say, Josh, guess what? I've chosen to follow Jesus, become a Christian. Um, I'd love to, to talk with you more about that. And then the third way is um, the most immediate way. And that is as we stand and sing in just a second, I stand at the connect table, which is in the foyer to your right, um, if you were to turn around right now. And as we sing, if you want to step out in the aisle, you want to come back and talk with me, you can just reach out and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and I'd be happy to share with you about what that looks like. So I'll pray for us if you would uh, bow your head and close your eyes. Heavenly Father and Lord, we thank you, God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the fact that you have empowered your people. 
We thank you for the fact that you live in your people. So Lord, we thank you for this. And Lord, my prayer right now is that you would use yourself, you would use the Holy Spirit to move in us, to twist us, to convict us, to show us the way of righteousness, maybe to bring us to tears, maybe to bring us to a point of repentance. But Lord, I pray that you would work on us. There's not one of us who doesn't need to be worked on. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would do just that. Now Lord, as we stand and sing, my prayer is that um, we'd sing as people that have been redeemed for our sins. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.